Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 26. As we have been doing, we will cover this chapter in its entirety. We have a lot to cover, so let's get started. 1 Samuel chapter 26, beginning in verse 1, reads, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of Heshamon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakalah, which is beside the road on the east of Heshemon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Azurah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul. And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there they lay, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner, the army, lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they had all fallen, um, for were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the, great, the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill. With a great space between them, David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die, because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, 
It is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore, let my Lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, one day in seven that you have given us. We thank you for the word already proclaimed this morning, and we ask now for your help. Please attend your word by your spirit. Instruct us. Encourage us in the faith. Point us to Christ. Yes, even in this narrative. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Any of you have book series that you like to reread on certain occasions? I already know that there are some here that like to do so. Do you like to read or reread your favorite books? Do any of you enjoy watching or re-watching reruns on TV, maybe your favorite TV series or movie series? Well, there may be some of us who do not like to reread or to re-watch shows very much, but I would like to think that for most of us, We like to, because we identify with a particular story, we identify with certain characters that we like. I'll tell on myself, my wife and I, we like Blue Bloods, and it's just something we enjoy. On the side, I might sneak in a Star Trek episode or two. And there's those things that you can just watch because you like the story, you like the characters, and they capture us, don't they? They they, they just stand out in our minds. Now, as you know, when we read a book, you pick up on certain things that you may have missed a first time. And when you rewatch a show, even, or a movie, you see some details that you may not have seen previously. My point is that rereading and rewatching, the repetition has a lot of value for us. 
And as we come to our chapter this afternoon, chapter 26 feels a little like a rerun, doesn't it? The chapter before us this afternoon has so much in common with chapter 24, when David and Saul were at the cave. In fact, so much so that it seems almost a little redundant. Well, it is not, and let me be clear, it's not the same story. But it is about the same thing. So let me ask you a question. Why? Why the repetition? The repetition? You can be sure that David had plenty of other adventures while he was out in the wilderness, when he was out in the desert. Why not tell us one of these? Something new rather than repetition. Well, as you know, one of the major features of repetition is to underscore things that are very important. As parents, think about just how many times we repeat ourselves to our kids. So the theme of chapter 24 was about what, you may recall? Not taking revenge for yourself, especially against the Holy One of the Lord. This was also an essential point of chapter 25 with Abigail as well, wasn't it? But why? Why is this so important? Well, as you know, to avenge yourself according to Scripture, is a major sin. And, understandably, it would have been a huge temptation for David. This would have been something that kings were very tempted to do. But as we will see here, there is much more to it. For in the narrative that we have this afternoon, we will see David foreshadow Christ in a spectacular way. So, David is still wandering out in the desert after his wedding to Abigail, hiding in caves and camping in the wilderness. Now, this isn't exactly your ideal way of spending your honeymoon, but clearly this is what they did. And during this time, some of the locals spot David, and we've met these locals before. The Ziphites are the ones that ratted out David back in chapter 23. And this resulted, as you recall, in his near capture. Well, no one likes a tattletale, and the Ziphites, they have a master's degree in it. They again run off to tell Saul and tell them exactly where David is hiding. It really is no wonder that David wrote Psalm 54 about the Ziphites, where he asked God to deliver him out from these ruthless men. I mean, who needs enemies like the Philistines when you have fellow countrymen like the Ziphites? Well, Saul takes the intelligence report and he goes after David, listen to me, with three units of special forces. The end of chapter 24, after Saul had made his good confession of sin, And he called off the hunt to David. We did get the impression that he had kind of sobered up from his sin. But here we are again. He is foolishly pursuing David and with no good reason. Of course, we have seen Saul before, haven't we? Swinging between sane obedience and the insanity of jealousy. So it appears that Saul is having one of his episodes with that troubling spirit once again. 
And yet, Saul's not acting like his usual bad self this go-round. No, there is no haste. There is no urgency in his movements. As well as when, when he gets down to where David is at, Saul makes camp and he decides to do what? He decides to take a nap. Napping on the job is kind of like the unforgivable sin in a military mission. Saul appears lethargic, half-hearted even in his pursuit of David. It's like he's just going through the motions. He really just doesn't want to be there. Well, where Saul is dragging his feet, David is up and he is at them. This hill at Hakala is probably a long ridge, partly wooded, and it overlooks a desert plain. So Saul is on one part of the ridge, and David would probably be higher up on another part. David hears that Saul is in the area, but instead of running this time, David sends out some scouts. He locates Saul's exact location, and he recruits his nephew Abishai for a nighttime covert op. David seems to be going on the offensive here. But what is he exactly doing? What is he up to? You see, Saul has 3,000 top-notch warriors, and David now is going to take a two-man team down to infiltrate the camp. I mean, we know that David's smart, but here he's acting almost a little crazy. I mean, what is David's intention at this moment? This is either a fact-finding mission or it's an assassination attempt. It's almost like David is playing with temptation. Well, we're not given a detailed image of Saul's camp, but we're given a small idea. We can assume that Saul is lying down in the very middle with the wagons surrounding him, and then around them the whole army is encamped. And we get a little hints there in our text. So David then, this means that David would have had to, to sneak in the most secure location, basically think mission impossible. And yet providentially, in Saul's camp, it was like the night before Christmas, when all through the house, not even, not a creature was stirring, not even an Israelite mouse. Saul's men are all sawing logs. They're out cold. So under the cover of night, David and Abishai, they reach Saul at the very center. And what happens? Abishai is elated. Look at verse 8. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please... Let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. I will not strike him twice. Abishai freely offers to kill Saul for David. He will take Saul's own spear and impale him to the ground with the promise of doing it what? With one single blow. Saul will be dead. And they can get away safely under the cover of night, and no one will know. Now, Abishai's offer does seem like common sense. Why else would they sneak into the camp? 
They wouldn't have gone this far to return home empty-handed. Besides, Abishai offers to do the dirty work himself. David, just look the other way. I'll take care of this. All will be good. Talk about tempting. In the unthoughtfulness of Abishai, David can literally hear the hiss of the serpent. What Abishai sees as an opportunity, David sees as the test that it is, as a probation. Of course, David will not let Abishai kill Saul. Note verse 9 with me. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed? And it says this, And be guiltless. Once again, David cites the sacred status of the Lord's anointed. You cannot lay your hand on him and be guiltless. Now, David has learned something from the last chapter that we see played out in this chapter. Look at verse 10. He says this, he says, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come to die, or he will go into battle and perish. So David says, unless the Lord strikes him, or he dies naturally, or he dies in battle. Now, the word for strike here is what the Lord did to Nabal. And so David has learned the lesson of Abigail, and we can see this played out. He learned to trust God to avenge his enemies. David will not take the law into his own hands. He will leave vengeance up to the Lord. Well, this is clearly a good show of restraint and uprightness for David. And yet, it still brings up a very nagging question for all of us today, doesn't it? Why did David even go out on this mission? Well, if you look closely, we see why. For he takes the spear, and he takes the water jug by Saul's head, and he leaves. What's the point? Well, two items here, the spear and the water jug, they they are symbolically charged. For one, this spear is the very spear that Saul attempted to assassinate David with, not once, but twice. This spear. This spear is the one that, that Saul coddled like a baby blanket during his episodes with that troubling spirit. And so to take the spear then reveals the vanity of Saul's murder attempts and how David will not repay evil for evil. David takes the spear of jealousy to show Saul's animosity is absolutely unfounded. And that David is innocent in response. Secondly, David also takes this water jug, this water jar by Saul's head. Now, for those of you that have done some some desert work, you're out in the field, you know that your canteen is your source for life. And so to take this then reveals that David is sparing Saul's life yet again. It shows that Saul owes David his life. David had Saul's 
life in his hands. He could have poured it out, but instead, once again, we see David shows mercy. He spared the one that was trying to kill him. Well, David and Abishai make off with these two important object lessons And now we learn why Saul and his army were such heavy sleepers, don't we? Look at the middle of verse 12. It tells us, No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep. And it says, Because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. It says here that a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. No wonder they did not wake up. We see the Lord. We see the Lord aiding in this nighttime covert op. Now David is safely away now, so there's some distance, and he wastes no time in waking them up. Look at 13 and 14, and this is where we have a lot of fun in the narrative. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, will you not answer Abner? Then Abner answered, who are you who calls to the king? Well, after Abner probably hit the snooze button a couple times, he finally answers, but yet he doesn't recognize David's voice. Now, it's interesting what David says to Abner in verse 15. First, it sounds like David questions Abner's manhood. He says, are you not a man? This would be something you would say when you're about to point out a fault to somebody. You see, the mistake is so bad that David puts Abner's manhood into question. This may hurt our American sensibilities a tad, but it serves as a very important point. The error that David is highlighting is Abner's failure. Listen to me. Abner's failure to guard the king of Israel. Think about this with me. If you are the head of the secret service and the president gets assassinated on your watch, guess what? That's a big deal. That's a big deal. For Abner, if Saul would have been killed, his blood would have been on him. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter why you failed as a bodyguard If you are the bodyguard, you must protect the king at all cost. In fact, David tells Abner that he doesn't even deserve to live. Note verse 16. This thing you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. During this time, if a bodyguard fails to do his job and he falls asleep on the job, he would have been executed. So let me ask another question. What is the significance of this banter with Abner? Well, note what David says at the end of verse 15. For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your Lord. Now, this person that David is referring to is Abishai. He's the one who would have slaughtered Saul without even a second thought. But then David shows Abner the spear and the water jug that were at Saul's head. He displays these items 
And he does so, think about this with me, he does so as a testimony that it was David that saved Saul's life. Abishai was going to murder, but here is the water jar. I saved his life. Now, why would David do this? Well, this proves that David is a better general than Abner. He is a better protector of the king's life than the king's bodyguard. Abner is Saul's most trusted general. He is Saul's number one man. And yet, where Abner falls asleep on the job, who's the vigilant one? It was David. And David shows once again that he is not, listen to me, he's not a usurper to the throne, and he is not a rebellious servant. Rather, he has just proven that he is Saul's most faithful servant. David's care for Saul's life is greater than the mighty Abner. David is proving his uprightness and his good disposition towards the king of Israel. And David will continue to demonstrate this in the next two speeches that we will see. For after this exchange with Abner, Saul recognizes David's voice, doesn't he? And then the two of them start to have a little powwow together. Now David's first declaration to Saul He's going to prove his innocence, and he's going to do this in 18 through 20. I'm not going to read it, but verses 18 through 20 is David proving his innocence. David asks Saul, what have I done? What is my crime? The answer is clearly nothing. So then David characterized Saul's pursuit of him like hunting a partridge, a bird in the mountains. The king of Israel it says, is chasing a single flea. This is such overkill that the fault must be with Saul. Now David here also mentions his persecution. He assumes that the other men are inciting Saul to hunt David. Saul's being manipulated by by more devious men. Look at what David says about these other men. He says that they are driving David out of the Lord's inheritance, saying, go, and worship other gods. Now, there are two ideas behind this statement. First, among Israel and her neighbors, it was assumed that you could only worship your God or the gods in their land. You see, in the surrounding area, each territory had their own God. And in those territories, this is where proper worship would have supposedly have occurred. So to leave one's territory was to choose another god. Now Israel knew that the Lord was not limited in this way, but still the proper place for true worship was the promised land, and in particular the tabernacle. Secondly, though, to drive David from the land and to tell him to go and serve other gods is functionally to kick him out of the covenant community. This would have been a sign then of God's disfavor. Look, David, just leave. Find another God. The Lord doesn't want you. So the temptation that stands before David is not just blood revenge, but essentially he's being told to commit idolatry. Go. Go to another land. Serve other gods. 
It's no wonder then why Psalm 63, David so strongly confessed this. He said, you are my God. All of his enemies are telling him, go find another God. Yahweh has forsaken you, but David knew better. And he clung to the Lord while the Lord was holding on to him during this time of trial. Well, Saul hears David's speech of innocence, and again Saul says, Amen. Saul again shows humility, he shows honesty, he confesses his sin and admits that the error was very great. The guilt is on him. David is innocent, and the sin is all of Saul's. Now Saul's going to make a request here. Look at verse 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David. I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. And he says, Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. The sum of it is this, that Saul has asked David to come back. Come back home. And he promises, I'm never going to hurt you again. Saul here petitions David, and I want you to think about this, for for reconciliation, for restoration. But how does David respond to this? Verse 22 tells us, And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. David lifted up the spear and he offers it back to Saul. David will not return to Saul, but he will return the spear. The spear was a reminder of all the attempted murders upon David by Saul. It highlighted the vanity of Saul's attempts to return. The spear then would be a testimony that David will not return evil for evil. Next, David appeals to the Lord's justice. Note verse 23. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. David is not asking for mercy. Rather, he is asking for the Lord to reward him. And in particular, and this may not sit well with you, but we have to think through it, in particular because of his righteousness. This is bold. David lifts up his obedience as worthy of God's reward. He is essentially saying that his obedience deserves the Lord's prize. Now there is a specific obedience in mind here, and this is what we need to discuss. He did not put out his hand against the Lord's anointed. David sparing Saul's life, this is the worthy obedience of David. Note what David did keep. He didn't keep the spear, but he kept the water jar. He kept the item that showed that he spared Saul's life. Now what prize does David have in mind as recompense for his faithfulness to the Lord? Well, he tells us in the middle of 24, and we're going to need to tie this back to, chapter, uh, to the previous chapter too. 
But in the middle of 24, he says, So may my life be precious to the Lord. And he says this, And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Ultimately, this would be him asking for the kingdom of Israel. Abigail made this clear, and we looked at this, that the deliverance of David would become what? Would be him becoming king. The point is that David says that his faithfulness deserves the kingdom of Israel. Saul's disobedience forfeited the kingdom for him. So David's obedience earns the kingdom. This is extraordinary. Think about this. David lifts up his obedience over Saul and up to the Lord. And essentially he says this, Give me the kingship of Israel because I spared the anointed one. What is interesting here is Saul's response. He once again gives what? He gives an amen. Look at the beginning of verse 25. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. Saul confirms that David is right and he has blessed him as the one more righteous than himself. And with this, Saul leaves David in peace. In fact, Saul departs and they will never, at this point, they're never going to speak again. For all of Saul's problems, and make no mistake, we've covered them, haven't we? He has a lot of them. But we must acknowledge here that at least in his last words to David, that these were good words. For a while now, Saul's been trying to murder David and destroy his coming reign. And he does so out of jealousy. But here, here we see that he blesses David and he departs in peace. And what a powerful demonstration of the Lord's mercy that there is even hope for men like Saul. And yet the question that keeps nagging us, at least it should, I hope I've built up the tension enough for you. How can David appeal to the righteousness, uh, excuse me, appeal to his righteousness for God's reward to the throne? How can David appeal to his righteousness for God's reward to the throne? Surely no man can say this before God. We know David is not perfect. We know this. We already seen some of his faults up to this point, And we are well aware of some of his sins in the future. But what is the basis for his appeal in this particular action? That's the question we have to ask. Well, I want to submit to you that it's the law. It is the law of Moses. Think about this. For national Israel, in the Old Covenant, the blessings and the curses were tied to what? They were tied to the promised land. The Lord told Israel if they obeyed, they would receive what? They would see, receive long life in the land. Okay, and we're talking about national Israel here. Okay, this is what God promised in His covenant with them. And so this now is a matter of justice. God will do what He says He will do. And in particular, for the potential king, this became obedience for the throne. 
life in the land for himself and for the people that the king would represent. In Samuel Ranahan's book on, on covenant, he talks about this over and over. As go the king, so goes the people. And so during this time in the old covenant, the Lord would honor, listen to me, the external and honest obedience of his people. Their hearts were in no way perfect, but if they externally kept the law, God would honor them according to that covenant promise in the old. And my point is this, that David, David has done this. Yes, we see his doubts, we've seen his anger at the end of the day, but he spared Saul's life. And over the few chapters that we have covered, this act of obedience has become his probation period. We haven't really talked about covenant theology in this class, but I know that many of you have, uh, do understand it, that, that the blessing of Adam, if he would not have have disobeyed God, he would have received the blessing of life for him as the federal head plus his, uh, his children. But he failed in that, okay? We're seeing an example here of, of David's obedience as the righteous one to receive the reward of the promised land as the king, Okay? We'll fast forward in a minute. Hold tight. This was a paramount test for David to pass. Once again, and I need to emphasize this, David was not a usurper to the throne, but he trusted the Lord in vengeance. And with the water jug in his hand as a testimony, we can see that David has passed this probationary period. His obedience here is essentially worthy of the kingship. And once again, this theme of David not avenging himself has been so critical throughout the last few chapters. Why? Well, for two reasons I want to submit to you. One, because David's probation was necessary for the throne, listen to me, for the physical kingdom of Israel. Secondly, it teaches us that the kingdom of God must be earned. Because of our sin, in order for us to have eternal life in heaven, it must have to be paid for. It must have, bad grammar, sorry must have been, must be paid for. It's the afternoon. And it must be paid for, listen to me, with perfect righteousness. With perfect obedience. And this was a matter, and is a matter, of God's justice. You see, what was demanded of David on an external, earthly level... Christ had to do it perfectly for us to be able to have heaven. David's obedience then is a foreshadow of what Christ did for us. You see, Jesus had to keep the probation. Yet for him, it wasn't just earthly and external. It was perfect and internal as well. 
David echoes the probation that the first Adam failed to perform in the garden, and yet he also foreshadows the last Adam. How so? David's obedience was demonstrated by showing mercy to the unworthy. And this is the pattern that Christ fulfilled for you and I. David's act of obedience spared, listen to me, David's act of obedience spared the life of one wicked man. Christ's one act of righteousness brought justification in life to all that the Father gave him. Christ showed obedience by showing mercy to the likes of sinners like Saul. Have you ever considered that there are only two Saul's Featured in Scripture. I'm almost done. Have you ever thought about that? There's two Saul's that are really featured in Scripture. This one with David and the one in the New Testament. And they are both persecutors of the Messiah. Just as David spared the life of Saul, so Christ changed the name to his Saul to Paul, the chief of sin. And so with the obedience of Christ to die for Saul, he displays his perfect patience and mercy, listen to me, to you and to me. If there is hope for Saul, there is hope for us. That's the point. More than hope, brothers and sisters, we have the sure promise of God in Christ that all who believe in Jesus will have everlasting life. By faith in Christ, His one act of righteousness is your justification. By grace, His life is freely your life and sealed in His mercy. Your life is truly precious in His sight. Do you acknowledge yourself to be the apple of God's eye? He will deliver you from all trouble unto the resurrection and glory, and He does it because of the work of Christ. Well, if these are the reruns of Scripture, may there be many, many more. May we never tire of remembering the glorious gospel of Christ and the many figures of the Old Testament that point us to the work of Christ. It is a beautiful thing. We could spend so much more time on this chapter, but I hope that, that you see how it foreshadows our Lord and what the Lord has done on our behalf.